How are we doing today? Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Community. And uh, this is the Leeward Campus, in case that's the campus you wanted to go to this morning. Uh, my, my name is Tom Nelson, and uh, we're uh, just delighted, delighted you are here today. And we uh, always pray that you would sense the presence of Christ here, uh, and that you know how much uh, you are loved and how warmly we welcome you in Christ's name today. Well, one of the most precious things, I think, in all of life is trust. It seems to me that all flourishing relationships require it, and effective institutions and effective organizations depend on it. Trust is a very precious thing, isn't it? But it also is very fragile. Trust can evaporate quickly, like into thin air. And trust is hard to earn, but let's face it, it's very, very easy to lose. I was reminded of that this week as I opened my Wall Street Journal, and uh, right on the headlines that I saw first and foremost was Alabama governor faces impeachment. Now, it's interesting when you read the article that Governor Bentley, I don't know this gentleman, but the description is this, the neglect of duty, corruption in office, and gross incompetency. The article also goes on to describe uh, Governor's strong accusation with lots of evidence about his ongoing extramarital affair with his former chief advisor. The spokesman for the legislature made this comment summarizing what the state of Alabama was facing. We're looking at this governor who has essentially betrayed the trust of the people of Alabama. Now, whether it is government leaders, uh, business leaders, educational leaders, church leaders, parachurch leaders, none of us have to look very far to encounter the betrayal of trust and to feel and see the painful shrapnel it brings to our lives, our families, and our institutions. I, too, have felt that deep sting when I encountered the raw wounds of betrayal, particularly by a leader I trusted. When I was in seminary, the pastor I sat under was exposed for ongoing marital infidelity. I don't remember a time in my life when my faith was more deeply shaken, my soul more deeply wounded, and my heart more deeply disillusioned. See, trust cannot be assumed. It cannot be demanded. And neither can it be legislated. Truly, trust is one of life's most precious and yet most fragile commodities. So it is not surprising that when it comes to trusting our leaders, so many of us have our guards up. We are leery, aren't we, that leaders really are who they say they are, that they will do what they say they will do, and that they truly care for us. The truth is, to follow leaders, we must first trust them. So what about Jesus? Can we really trust him? Is Jesus who he claims to be? Did Jesus do what he said he would do? Does Jesus really care? The first century gospel writer Matthew knew, as we do, that trust was a very precious and fragile thing. Matthew realized, as we realize, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, that trust is difficult. 
And if we can't fully trust Jesus, we cannot wholeheartedly follow him. They go together. And as a faith community, we have been exploring since the first of the year, really, Matthew's gospel. We have been looking through the chapters of Matthew's gospel. For eight chapters, Matthew has been showcasing who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught. He presents with beautiful literary artistry, story after story. But underlying those stories are two underlying questions that shadow his entire gospel. These two questions frame our conversation this morning. First, can you trust Jesus completely? And secondly, will you follow Jesus wholeheartedly? If you brought a Bible, bring or turn there if you would, electronic paper to Matthew's gospel, the first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Now, as we enter back into the text, we understand that Matthew shares his own personal story of deciding to follow Jesus. And we looked at that if you were here last week. So Matthew next weaves into his narrative this fabric, three logical threads of thought. And these three logical threads of thought focus on why Jesus is completely trustworthy to follow. These three threads. First, he will say Jesus is who he claimed to be. Thread one. Secondly, he will say that Jesus does what he says he will do. Thread two. And then he builds to this beautiful crescendo in this chapter to say the third thread of logic is that Jesus cares for you and me. And that frames the unpacking of this text. So let's dive in. From the opening verses of the gospel, from chapter one, verse one, Matthew places Jesus in the mainstream of the narrative of the entire Old Testament. Jesus features, or Matthew features, Jesus' impressive messianic resume. That's how I would say it. In chapters 5 through 7, we have seen Jesus' brilliant teaching on display, and it is truly brilliant. Then in chapter 8, and washing into chapter 9, we see Jesus' astonishing power over all realms of existence, the natural realm and the supernatural realm. So as we come to chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, Matthew continues to display Jesus' power, but there is a literary twist in this section. And that is that Matthew zeroes in on Jesus' compassionate and tender touch. In fact, you will notice the explicit emphasis of touch in this text. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to highlight a little of it. And I encourage you again to read some of these stories in great detail. But Matthew begins by recounting the healing of a woman who simply reached out and touched the very edge of Jesus' garment. But perhaps most amazing to Matthew and to all of us is the account of Jesus raising from the dead the daughter of the synagogue leader. Now you'll notice that Matthew makes the point to point out the scoffing and skeptical crowd. Now, this should not surprise us. Because regardless if we are in the first century or the 21st century, there's one thing we can count on. Dead people stay dead. Right? Matthew knows this. His readers know this. We all know this. 
So the tendency for us as modern people to listen and read to a story like this, the tendency is to sort of, whoa, sort of quickly dismiss this story as sort of fanciful or fabricated or embellished myth. But if we are willing to look a bit closer and think a bit harder, which I'm going to ask you to do with me this morning, the fact that Matthew includes this startling account actually makes what Jesus did much, much more historically plausible and compelling. Now, let me unpack that. I want you to put on your brains with me this morning, okay? I don't know where they are, but join me, okay? <laughs> Let's remember first, as we enter into this world, that it's highly likely Matthew, again, who we met and encountered last week, who was in the tax booth, who followed Jesus, Matthew saw this miracle of Jesus raising this young girl, most likely, from the dead with his very own eyes. We do know that Matthew's gospel was written about 40 to 45 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So Matthew knew as he wrote this story, say about 47 years later, that the truthfulness of what he wrote could be corroborated by living eyewitnesses. In other words, if this was fabricated, the credibility of Matthew's writings would have been instantly shattered and put on history's literary trash heap. The fact that Matthew's historical account is one of the most widely read literary works of all time and is the first book in the New Testament speaks of its literary credibility and its massive historical authenticity. Think of it like this. At least I think it helps think like this. Um, as a young boy, I was really young then, 47 years ago, uh, in July 1969. Some of you know that date. It was an important date, right, in the world. I saw with my own eyes, yes, on the television screen, astronaut Neil Armstrong become the first human his person in history to walk on the moon. I think I've seen some nods. Some of you are a little older. You, you saw this, right? Now, I know that happened with high confidence. <laughs> but it, it may be, to some, unthinkable and fanciful and imagine, imaginative. It certainly was for millennia that a person would walk on the moon. Now, imagine if an historian, a good PhD historian, came out and said, a current contemporary historian said, there's no way that ever happened. It's fanciful, imaginative. There's no way an American astronaut walked on the moon. So how plausible, how credible would that historian be? Zip. <laughs> right? Zip. Because... The most credible historian is not only a personal eyewitness, but writes the history within that time frame when other eyewitnesses can either verify or falsify it immediately. Follow me? So Matthew's account is highly credible. It was written some 40 years after Jesus raising this girl from the dead. It does stretch our rational imagination and plausibility, doesn't it? It did to Matthew's readers, and it did to Matthew. That's not surprising. 
but the historical veracity of the story is profoundly strong. I also find it fascinating that the Gospel writer Matthew includes one of Jesus' most exuberant fans later on in Matthew chapter 11, kind of a goofy sort of guy, and this guy had doubts about Jesus. His name was John the Baptist. He did all kinds of strange things, right? Remember that? But Matthew includes John the Baptist's doubt about Jesus in his gospel in Matthew 11. I'll tell you the story. He's in prison, John the Baptist. He sends a delegation to Jesus. And basically in chapter 11, he says to him, are you really the Messiah? <laughs> or, or should we look for somebody else? John the Baptist was really doubting this. And in verse 4 in chapter 11, Jesus sends back through the delegation that was sent to him by John, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. See, Jesus is saying, what I'm doing validates who I claim to be. He's saying, if you want to know who I am, watch what I do. Don't doubt anymore. It's time to believe. That's the idea. And he knows, and we know, that few things are more corrosive to trust than gnawing doubt. What I have found in my own journey of faith is that my heart cannot fully embrace what my mind rejects. So the question that shadows the entire gospel is this question. Because Matthew's gospel is not just communicated to give us information about Jesus. It is written in such a way to persuade us to follow him. And the question is this. Can we really, really trust Jesus? That's the question. Is he who he claimed to be? Now you may be here this morning and are wrestling with this question. It's an important question. Maybe you have honest doubts about the New Testament writers and the Christian faith. Someone I've said before whose mom named him Tom and often called him Doubting Thomas, I get that because <laughs> I am a doubter by nature. Doubts, for some of us who are big doubters, are normal things. The question for the thoughtful, integral person is not whether you doubt or not. <laughs> But what are you going to do with those doubts? That's the question. Are you going to dig in your heels in a sort of arrogant, myopic, closed-minded disbelief, as if you have an infinite gaze of the universe? <laughs> or are you going to be courageous enough, humble enough, not only to question Christian faith, but also question your doubts about the Christian faith? Both are important. Are you really willing to doubt your doubts? Matthew is clearly making some humongous, can you use that word? Humongous truth claims here about Jesus. No question. But are you willing to look at the evidence? I think the finest writer in the 20th century, perhaps, but also that has addressed this question, was longtime atheist who comes to Jesus, former Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, who becomes a follower of Jesus. And he tells us that there are really only three responses, logically, to Jesus' claims. 
First, we can think Jesus is a complete lunatic, completely disconnected with the reality. Secondly, he says, we can see Jesus as a pathological liar, <laughs> the ultimate Ponzi schemer, a true monster. Or, Lewis says, we can see Jesus as truly Lord God in the flesh, the creator, redeemer, sustainer of all things, the king of kings, as Matthew says, Lord of lords. See, the tendency is we want to squirm here, don't we? Sort of an intellectual squirm. We want to do an end run around these options and say, ah, there's a fourth option. But Jesus is, well, he's just a good moral teacher. But Lewis reminds us that is not a logical, viable option. And he writes these words in a classic book called Mere Christianity. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else the devil himself from hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But, Lewis says, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. See, what we need to see as readers of the text is the New Testament writers see a compelling and persuasive continuity that the very person who raised this dead daughter of the synagogue leader was himself the one who was raised from the dead Easter morning. In other words, to read this gospel well, we need to read chapter 9 as a foreshadowing of what is going to take place in chapter 28 when Jesus raises from the dead. This is a foreshadowing. Above all else, Matthew says, Jesus' bodily resurrection is history's bold exclamation point that Jesus is who he claimed to be. A couple years ago, uh, Dr. Peter Berger was in Kansas City. He's one of the finest sociologists, probably one of the most influential sociologists in the world. He's quite elderly now. He's taught a generation of sociologists at Boston University and all across the country at the most elite universities. And uh, it was great having Dr. B uh, Berger here, and we had some time with him, some of our staff, and interacting with him. I'll never forget, one of the staff asked him this question. Pretty bold question. I'm sitting right next to him. Uh, Dr. Berger, do you consider yourself a follower of Jesus? And this is what he said. He paused, his towering intellect, and he said, yes. He said, I'm a follower of Jesus because something happened on that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago that truly changed human history. See, in my interaction with people who consider themselves Christians as well as those who presently don't, I find the struggle to follow Jesus is not as much about overcoming intellectual hurdles as it is about embracing the high moral standards Jesus embodies and teaches in our life. See, to the open-minded, the evidence presented by the gospel writers like Matthew is very, very strong that Jesus actually is who he claimed to be. Matthew knew, and in Jesus' first century followers knew, 
that the Christian faith properly understood does not call us to put our brain on the shelf. It actually calls us out of the love of Christ to pursue the most rigorous and highest intellectual engagement imaginable. God is never threatened, nor Jesus is ever threatened by intellectual inquiry because all truth ultimately leads to an empty tomb and to the person of Christ who is the author of truth. We can trust Jesus. Not only because he is who he claimed to be, but notice where Matthew goes, because he does what he says he will do. Here in chapter 9, Matthew will continue, as you notice, and read it carefully today or this week, to present Jesus as staying true to his divine mission. Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do. And what's really encouraging is he not only says it, he has the power to do it. Uh, One of my favorite parts of this section is the story in verses 27 to 31, if you're following along, as we read the story of two blind men. Two blind men who cry out for mercy from Jesus. And if you've been following this series, you know that Matthew continually drips in delicious irony in the text for those who see it. And there's a big dose here. These two men are physically blind, yet in the story, they are the ones that have the most eyesight. They really, truly see. They not only see what they see, they see who they should see. They see who Jesus really is. And they use the word son of David, which is a messianic term from 2 Samuel 7. They understand he is the Messiah. Don't you love in the story how Jesus asked these two blind men in verse 28 this question? Do you see it? I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Here is the creator, sustainer of the universe. The one who's going to die on a cross, raised from the dead. He looks at them and they hear his voice. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? <laughs> and what is awesome, truly awesome, is the response these two guys have. Original language is very short. Very short. We translate English, yes, Lord. But I think a good translation is, yep. Yep, you can do it. It's the idea. Isn't it stunning to you? There's no elaborate theological formulations that they expressed. There's no emotional appeal about their story, no manipulation. They simply say, yep. You can. And hearing these words, Jesus reaches out and touches their eyes and they are healed. Now this subject about human faith, divine healing, is a complex subject, isn't it? Like many things in life. Yet, it brings the greatest misunderstanding and distortions and injures many, many people. Let me, I could address many areas, but let me address the damage that can often come from distorted teaching or pastoral malpractice or spiritual abuse. I encounter it all too often as a pastor. And I have to say my heart goes out to many refugees from toxic faith environments that I often meet who are damaged and disillusioned by spiritual leaders who tell them if they have just enough faith, then God will heal them. 
or that they are somehow sick and not well because they don't have enough faith. Or their illness is directly caused by some specific sin in their life. And if you have been hurt by this kind of spiritual deception and spiritual malpractice, I am so terribly sorry. Matthew makes clear in each of these stories of Jesus healing that physical healing is not based on the amount or sincerity of our faith, but on the object of our faith person of Jesus. Hear me carefully. This text is so distorted in its teaching, often. It is not how much faith we have, but who we place our faith in. When Jesus uses this phrase, it is plucked from the context and distorted. According to your faith, be it done to you. He is not getting all excited about how much faith or trust people have, but that their faith or trust, however weak, feeble, and frail, is directed toward him. And the Hebrew writer says that he is the author and perfecter of faith. I mean, think about it. If you look carefully and understand the flow of Matthew, it's pretty obvious, for example, right away, that the dead girl really didn't have a lot of faith in Jesus, did she? I'm not trying to be cutesy. It's stunning how this texts and texts are so distorted and abused with such damage to people. Along with that, think of the hemorrhaging woman. She doesn't ask to be healed. She, there's an indication in the text she longs for healing, but she doesn't even ask Jesus to heal her. She doesn't have the faith to ask. She just, just barely reaches and touches his garment. And the blind men? None of these are exactly mountain-sized faith people. They don't even ask Jesus. Look at the text. They don't ask him to heal him. They ask for mercy, and this word is a sense of having mercy on their soul. Not just their eyesight, but to heal them spiritually. That's the focus of the text. Because they know how deeply sinful they are. It's about Jesus. It's not about the size of their faith. In fact, these people have puny faith. Like you and me. Jesus... And Matthew's focus on Jesus here is about how powerful Jesus is and how wise it is to trust him. That's the focus of the text. Now again, hear me well. Don't misunderstand me. Sometimes God chooses to heal us physically or emotionally in a truly supernatural way. The New Testament tells some people have gifts of healing. And I believe it is right and proper to ask God to heal us. But this is the important part. Whether he chooses to act in a supernatural way to heal us is his divine prerogative. It's not based at all how much faith we have. Here in chapter 9, we see Jesus doing what he said he would do. That's where Matthew goes here in this text. Matthew wraps the narrative section, adding this literary exclamation point in verse 35. Do you see it? And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. And notice these three participles words, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. That's the summary teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So, from a literary perspective, you would think verse 35 was the end of that section. That's where it should be. It's a very impressive messianic resume, isn't it? But Matthew has something more up his literary sleeve. He not only wants us to grasp that truly trusting Jesus means that he is who he claimed to be and he does what he 
says he will do, but there is a third piece that has to be wrapped around your heart and mind if we're going to trust him, and that is the third part that he really cares for you and me. Notice verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he, Jesus, had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I want you to notice that the word choice of compassion and the metaphor of a shepherd carry the weight of meaning here. This is the crescendo. The word compassion is an unusual word. The New Testament writers hardly ever use it. There are many other common words. It's a word that captures one's visceral organs when you see something or you have a real distress, you have a physiological reaction. It captures one's deep burden, viscera in your heart. Gospel writer Luke uses this three times. One of the times he uses it is, remember the, the parable or story of the prodigal son or sons? The, the son who leaves his father, takes all his inheritance. I mean, he's completely bankrupt, physically, morally, spiritually, financially. He finally makes his way back. His father's watching from a distance. He sees his son, and he has this word. The kind of love of a parent. Unconditional, passionate, visceral compassion. And Matthew is saying, this kind of unconditional fatherly love, motherly love, that's never ending, never ceasing, always unconditional, is the kind of love Jesus has for you and me. That's what he's saying. But Matthew doesn't just say it propositionally. He paints a metaphorical picture that brings it home to my heart and your heart. That's where he goes. He goes for the heart. Because you and I are lost and hurting sheep. But Jesus, the good shepherd, notice the shepherd language, the metaphor, has come to rescue us and to lead us to life-growing, life-changing intimacy with him. That's where it goes. All the way through the Bible, this metaphor of the shepherd jumps out at us. King David, the great king of Israel, is seen as a shepherd king who writes Psalm 23, the most famous psalm ever written. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, picks this up. And the gospel writer John, in John chapter 10, devotes almost an entire chapter to Jesus' conversation that describes himself as the good shepherd. And I encourage you to read it. The gospel writer John recounts Jesus' specific words as we hear the tender, compassionate, loving heart of Jesus in perhaps the most tender, transparent way in all of the New Testament in John 10. Jesus says words like this. Listen, my sheep hear my voice and I call them by name. Jesus sees the hurting crowds, the mass of humanity, but he sees every individual and he knows you and me by name. Jesus is the good shepherd who is attentive to you always and attentive to me. See, nothing you are going through, nothing you may be fearing, nothing you may be struggling with, no hardship you are facing, no questions you are asking, no doubts you are wrestling with ever, ever, ever escapes his loving and watchful eye. Jesus is so attentive to us and his good broken world, the gospel writers remind us that every hair of our head, you know, some for us, that's more than others, right? And every sparrow that falls, God knows. Every. I love the great hymn written in 1905 by a woman named Avila Martin. And there's a wonderful story about that. You might want to look it up. It's really powerful. I'm not going to give it to you this morning. You can look it up. But the title is His Eye is on the Sparrow. Let me give you a few of the brilliant words. 
Why should I feel discouraged? And why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Whenever I am tempted, they relate. Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to sighing, when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free. His eyes on the sparrow and he watches me. Jesus, the good shepherd, is always attentive to you. No matter what you are feeling or experiencing or the loss you are facing, even when we wander far away from him, he's there. Even the most lost sheep he searches out. We may even run from him or hide from him, but he never runs from us, nor does he ever lose sight of us. My wife describes it this way so wonderfully. She says it's like this. Running from Jesus, Tom, she says to me, is kind of like running on a treadmill. You and I can run faster from him, but we never get further away from him. Yes. Jesus, the good shepherd, has your best interests at heart. He longs for you to flourish. He says the evil one wants to destroy, steal, and kill the life God has for you, but he has come to give you life and give it abundantly. And Jesus says when you follow him, he will protect you from evil and give you an abundant and flourishing life, not only now, but for all eternity. He leads us, the good shepherd, to green pastures, to still waters. He restores our soul. The great lover of our soul restores us. See, only the good shepherd can ever, ever satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and mine. No other human being, husband, wife, friend, best friend, can ever satisfy the longings of your heart for deepest intimacy that you long for. But Jesus can. And Jesus is there times when you feel very alone and life is confusing and he seems very distant. Jesus promised after his resurrection, he would never, ever leave his followers. And in John chapter 10, verses 14 to 15, Jesus puts it this way. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And notice, I lay my life down for my sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, shed his innocent blood for you and me. Wow. He died on a cross as an atoning sacrifice making that ultimate payment for your sin and mine. He was, risen from, he was raised from the dead. He defeated death once and for all. Jesus is the good shepherd who is who he claimed to be. Jesus is the good shepherd who did what he said he would do, and Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for you and me. The question is, if Jesus is completely trustworthy, then we should follow him. Matthew wants us to ask this question this morning as we get a glimpse of the grandeur and beauty of Jesus, our blessed Jesus. Will you follow him wholeheartedly? One of the greatest privileges of my life was to spend a good deal of time with the late Dallas Willard, former professor of philosophy at USC. And I have to say, Dallas Willard was the, one of the most brilliant minds I have ever been around. But he also was one of the most Christ-like and tender, compassionate people I've ever known. 
Those by Dallas Willard's bedside when he died said that Dallas' last words were simply, thank you. When I first heard that, I thought, how fitting, how, how fitting of Dallas. That was so Dallas. But the longer I've thought about those two last words, I'm beginning to believe they were really Dallas's first two words. Expressed to the good shepherd who he followed in life so closely, and the good shepherd who grabbed his hand so tightly when he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. So whether it's in life or death, Jesus, the good shepherd, is the one leader you can fully trust and wholeheartedly follow. Let's bow our heads for a moment of quiet reflection. Let's bow our heads and hearts. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have not yet responded to Jesus, the good shepherd's invitation to follow him. And this morning and perhaps a very clarifying way, Jesus has made clear to you who he really is and what he's done for you and how much he loves you. So will you respond to him this morning? Will you with repentance of your sin put your trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And express your heart to him, Jesus, I want you to be my good shepherd. I want to follow you. I repent of my sin that I've been living my life without you. Forgive me and give me the flourishing life you promised. Maybe you're also here this morning and while you've already placed your trust in Jesus and you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, is there an area of your life that you have placed off limits to Jesus? A part of your life where you're not following Jesus wholeheartedly. Will you in honest repentance say to Jesus, Lord, I'm turning this part of my life over to your control. Help me. Empower me. But it's all yours. Will you embrace the good shepherd with all in faith? Perhaps as you look at your life this morning, you recognize you're half-heartedly following Jesus. Your life is distracted, busy. You're numbly going through life going through the motions of being a Christian and having little spiritual passion and a very superficial touch-and-go intimacy with Jesus. Will you, in honesty and transparency, look to the good shepherd to lead you by still waters and restore your soul? You may simply say, Lord, restore me. Restore me. Jesus, our Savior, our precious shepherd, lead us. Much, much we need thy tender care. In your pleasant pastures feed us. And for our use thy foals prepare. Blessed Jesus. Blessed Jesus.